Our sermon this morning is uh, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. And the title of the sermon is Strange Fire and Worship. For our worshipers in training, our key words are fire, worship, and holy. Fire, worship, and holy. I invite you to turn there, Leviticus chapter 10. But before I start, I just want to ask you, you know, do you ever... Do you ever come and, and, and look around and just, just wonder about worship in general? Do you just ever wonder, do you ever look around and say, you know, why are we here? You know, why, why do we come right here together on Sunday? I mean, maybe you don't, maybe, maybe it's the elder in me, but, but I do a lot of times just look around and, and I wonder why other people are here, not because not I'm trying to judge their heart or anything like that, just curious, just curiosity, you know, why are we here why do we gather and worship? What's the purpose for coming here and worshiping? Is it important? Do we even need to do it? And, and the main question we'll be looking at this morning is how do we decide on what we do when we worship? So I believe it's important that we occasionally reorient ourselves to this idea of worship. When it comes to worship, we need to occasionally look at it and just figure out and think about why we are coming and make sure that we are grounded biblically in this idea of worship. I want to read a couple of quotes. I don't have a lot of original thoughts normally, so I want to read a couple of quotes. The first one's by John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God in Missions. Now, this is a book primarily about world missions, about reaching the unreached with the gospel uh, throughout the world. But in it, he makes a very important point, I think, about worship when he talks about missions. And I quote, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. In the same vein, John Calvin, that great reformer of the Christian church, he ranked worship as one of the most important aspects of the church, and he therefore took it very, very seriously. And he wrote this, There's nothing more perilous to our salvation than a preposterous and perverse worship of God. Let us know and be fully persuaded that wherever the faithful who worship him purely and in due form, according to the appointment of his word, are assembled together to engage in the solemn act of religious worship, he is graciously present and presides in the midst of them. So God is present here in our worship. He's presiding with us as we worship together. So you may be asking why the Old Testament and why Leviticus specifically? Well, we need to be careful. A lot of times we can have an, a tendency to overlook the Old Testament. You know, part of it is it's very large. It was written a long time ago in a completely different culture. But the Old Testament is very important to us as a church. It, it, the Old Testament is where we find a lot of the foundational elements of our faith, of our Christian faith. The Old Testament is where we first hear about God. It's where we first know about God. It's where we're introduced to God, who God is. It's where we learn about sin, about the ramifications and seriousness of sin. 
It's where we learn the concept of sacrifice, of holiness, of a covenant community, which we call our family of faith. It's where we learn about the atonement and about the concept of the Savior. The whole Old Testament pointed ahead to our Savior, which is Jesus Christ. And so now we have the New Testament, which is really just the apostolic commentary on the Old Testament. The New Testament unfolds and blossoms and expounds on the Old Testament. But what what does the New Testament say about the Old Testament? The New Testament says that the Old Testament was written for our instruction and learning as an example. Romans 15.4, Paul writes and says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. It says the same, same thing basically in 1 Corinthians 10.11. He says these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So the Old Testament is very vital. It's very important to our understanding of, of our faith and of, to our understanding of worship. And why Leviticus? Well, let me just tell you a couple of things about Leviticus. Leviticus, the English name of the book Leviticus means things concerning the Levites or these line of men who were descended from Levi, starting with Aaron and his sons, that God chose to be priests over the nation of Israel. Now, Leviticus, while Leviticus does establish the duties and purposes of the Old Testament priesthood, with much detail of the priests, their ritual acts of worship, all the different things they had to do before they worshiped God and while they worshiped God, on a larger scale, it shows the people of Israel how to deal with sin and impurity and how to worship and live with a holy God. This was a big problem. How do they worship and live with a holy God? And this concept of a holy God is crucial to our understanding of the text we're going to look at today. It's also crucial, though, to how we live our lives every day. And it's crucial to how we order and how we understand worship. And it's, and it's crucial to our very understanding of who this God is that we come and worship and serve and obey. So let me just give you a few key themes before we get to our text. Um, the first theme that I want to point out in Leviticus is that God is holy and God is present with his people. We see that all throughout Leviticus, that God is holy and present with his people. And since God is holy, holy, his people must address their sin and they must strive for personal holiness. God will have it no other way than to have his people deal with their sin in his presence. Now, this is mankind's greatest problem, is it not? Our sin. It's our greatest problem. It's what causes all the problems, all the heartache, all the suffering, all the sickness and disease in this world is caused by sin. Second theme, Leviticus, is that the whole Old Testament, but, but Leviticus especially, foreshadows and directs the new covenant believer to Christ. And it really points to Jesus and, all, and the different aspects of his sacrifice on the cross, all the different ways that he atoned for our sins. Jesus, though, it's important to remember, has fulfilled this sacrificial system that we read about, read about in Leviticus. Jesus has fulfilled that in a glorious way by bearing the sin of the world and bearing the punishment that had been pushed forward all those many years doing those sacrifices of goats and lambs and all the different animals. Jesus has fulfilled that sacrificial system. The third theme of Leviticus is a life of holiness. 
Now, there's almost half of the book of Leviticus, or chapters 17 through 27, have been called the Levitical Holiness Code. And what this is, is it deals with sanctification, or again, this idea of living a holy life within this covenant community of Israel. Peter, the Apostle Peter actually quotes Leviticus 11.44 when he says in 1 Peter 1.16, Be holy, for I am holy. This is a teaching that comes from Leviticus. The holy lives of God's people reflect the holy God they know and serve. So if you're a Christian here this morning, it's very important that you understand that you are called to a life of holiness. When God elects and calls people to himself, he not only calls them to salvation, but he calls them to a life of holiness. This is very important that we understand that. And the fourth and last theme is that worshipers must approach God only as God has commanded and with reverence and devotion. So we're going to look at that. I want to talk about, you know, worship a little bit. Uh, think about, I want you to think about birds. Okay, bird, God created a bird to fly. You know, how did he do that? We have to look at the bird's very nature to see how he did that. He gave them lightweight bones. He gave them wings. He gave them feathers. They were created to fly. They weren't created to walk all the time. They were created to fly. Same way God created fish to what? Swim, right? He gave them um, gills. He gave them fins. He gave them scales. He created the fish to swim. And I would argue that in the same way God's created people to worship. God has made us to worship. He's created us to be worshipers. But since the fall, our natural ability to worship God has been, it's been damaged. It's been obscured. We don't know how to worship God like we should. We worship other things. As Paul points out in Romans, we're now bent toward idolatry. We're bent toward looking to other things to worship because we were made to worship something, okay? So we suppress our knowledge of God and we refuse to honor him as God is also what Paul says in Romans. So even after we're born again, our desire to worship God must be cultivated. Even with a new heart, our desire to worship God must be cultivated. It must be pointed in the right direction. It must be informed in accordance with the directives of Scripture. And it is the pleasing of God that is the heart of our worship. It's one main thing I want you to remember. It's the pleasing of God that is the heart of our worship. Okay, let's turn now to Leviticus 10, now that we have those preliminary thoughts. And we have some context, I think, for to think through this idea of worship and think through these verses. Leviticus chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. We'll primarily stick verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read 1 through 7. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. 
So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and, not, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled, and do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. All right, so let's get a little more context and see what was happening right before this incident. Just prior to this, uh, Aaron and his sons in chapter 8 and 9, they had just been consecrated or set apart or established as priests. They were the first priests in in Israel. And in Leviticus, in chapter 9, when Aaron blesses the assembly of Israel gathered, it says that the Bible says that the glory of the Lord appears and fire came from before the Lord and it consumed the offering and the fat on the altar and all the people saw it. It says they shouted. It says they fell on their face. In this act, God accepted the offering and he validated what Aaron and his sons had done so far in their first acts as priests, God validated it. He sent fire and consumed it. So we see here a very, very important aspect here is that this mediatorial role that Moses had been playing as a mediator between the people and God, we see it shifting now to Aaron and the priests and his sons. So this is a very important thing. God is now transferring, starting to transfer this mediatorial role, the mediator between the people and God which you can imagine is a very important role. So can you imagine the scene? I mean, think about it for a minute. I know it's hard. It's really hard for me. I know it's hard for us. You know, we're, this is a long time ago. This is a completely different culture. But, but imagine the scene when this fire came down from heaven. You know, we're a little probably desensitized to this kind of stuff because of special effects in movies. But imagine the fire coming down, them knowing that this was the glory of God. You know, they had seen the fire. The fire had been protecting them and guiding them in the past. But imagine what the people felt and thought. You know, they, it says they shouted and fell on their face before God. I would imagine there was some fear in that shout. I would imagine there was some excitement in that shout. You know, who knows all the feelings that were going on through the people. So this was a very intense time for the people of Israel and for the priests. So even before this event, though, we need to understand that God had blessed Nadab and Abihu greatly, Aaron's two oldest sons that we just read about. In Exodus 24, these two men were among the few people that were allowed to see God and actually live to tell about it. In addition for that, they were chosen by God to the priesthood along with their father. And this ministry was given to their descendants for as long as the priesthood was active. Very great honor, I would imagine. And we saw that in this first sacrifice, God himself participated participated in it by sending fire down from heaven and burning up the offering. Now, we, just, we know what happens next. It's not the first or the last time that God has blessed mankind. He's done something great for his people. And then they turn around and do something sinful, you know, very shortly after. I mean, the first obvious example of that is Adam and Eve. I mean, God creates this beautiful place for them. He creates this beautiful garden. This is Eden. This is perfection. And what do they do? 
they throw themselves and mankind into a complete and utter state of sinfulness and separation from God by uh, what to us might seem like a kind of minor thing. You know, they ate some fruit. You know, big deal. You know, they ate a piece of fruit. But it was a big deal because God told them not to eat it. Fast forward way a long time further into Acts chapter 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira, that God strikes them dead for lying to the church and to God about how much money they would give from the sale of a house. You know, that to us that seems kind of minor, but to God it was not. So to us, these sinful actions seem kind of small, but to an infinitely holy God, because of His very nature, because of who He is, these seemingly small acts of sin are revealed as what they really are. That is cosmic acts of treason against God. They are revealed as big sins because they are sins against an infinitely big God, an infinitely holy God. And that's, where we, that's how we learn about the magnitude of these sins because of the magnitude of the God who's being sinned against. So this incident in Leviticus is not really an isolated incident or it's not an inconsistent act by God. Um, we have, there's a lot of people who uh, do not like the Bible, who speak against the Bible, and they try to paint the God of the Old Testament as a different God, as a mean God, um, versus uh, the God of the New Testament. But we see here that, that God is not changed whatsoever. That he, there is a consistency in that where God gives much, where He blesses much, He requires much. So where God blesses much, He requires much. And also in these incidents, God is showing mankind that He's real and that He means what He says. God doesn't play around. These are lessons to us that a healthy fear of God is good and right. We don't fear God for no reason or in ignorance. But when we sin against Him, we should understand that this is treason and treachery against our Creator. So when we sin, we break God's law, holy perfect law which flows from the very character of God himself. Now to Aaron and the congregation of Israel, God wants them to know that he takes his name and his glory very seriously and that the priest's job was not a game or an unimportant role in the religious life of the nation of Israel. They represented God to the people and because of who they were representing, theirs was a very serious and a very solemn task. So let's look, at, let's look at the Scripture a little bit and see if we can figure out what specifically Nadab and Abihu were guilty of. Verse 1 again says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now we see, and, we, and we've talked about it, but Nadab and Abihu were probably pretty excited about what had just happened, right? They were probably... You know, God sent the fire down on the altar. The people were shouting, falling down on their face. There were lots, lots going on. They were, they were probably pretty pumped, right? They were probably pretty, pretty, pretty hyped. Their adrenaline would have been flowing. You know, they were excited about what was going on. So Moses and Aaron, they go inside the tabernacle. And without waiting for instruction, Nadab and Abihu take a couple of censers. These are the fire pans or where they burn the incense on. And they grab some lit coals from the altar of incense. And next, they put some incense on the, on the censers where the fire was, and they enter the tabernacle. 
Now, at this point, we don't, it's really unclear whether they went into the most holy place or the holy of holies, which, um, you know, they definitely should not have gone in. But now the incense, now this incense offering was symbolic of the prayers of the people. And it was a part of some of the rituals that they went through to worship. So we can imagine, you know, that Nadab and Abihu's intention here was one of worship. Now, they probably had no malicious, no devious, no bad intent when they went and they offered up this fire. They probably were wanting to worship. This was one of the ways that the people of Israel worshipped was through this incense. More than likely, they just wanted to acknowledge the graciousness that the Lord had just shown them. They wanted to, they wanted to show God how gracious they were. But the key word in this verse is that their offering of burning incense was what? Unauthorized. The ESV and NIV translate this word as unauthorized, while the King James Version and the NASB translate it strange. This was unauthorized or strange fire. Now, why was this fire strange or unauthorized? And why was God so displeased with it? There's a few explanations that have been offered up. One is that they put the burning coals in their censers that were not from the altar or burnt offering that God had set on fire. Since the fire was from God, it might have been the only authorized fire to use. But the only problem with this is God did not command this until chapter seven, until chapter 16. So at this point, they would not have known that this was wrong. They, that, they would, that would not have been an issue. They didn't know that. Now, curiously, right after this incident, an- another reason is that in verses 8 through 10, God prohibits the use of intoxicating drinks while performing their priestly duties. Right in verses 8 through 10, God tells them this. Now, this has led some to believe that they were maybe intoxicated or drunk when they did this, when this event happened. And this is not really clear from the text. It doesn't say that they were. But while this may have contributed to their actions, it's not the reason that they were consumed by fire. Another thought is that they attempted to enter the holy place at an inappropriate or unauthorized time. This is based on chapter 16 in Leviticus, verses 1 through 2. In chapter 16, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Now, their sin may have been a combination of all... They may have done all of these things. We're really not sure. But at the end of verse 1, this gives us a little more information about this fire. It says that this fire was not commanded by the Lord. So regardless of what was going on through natives and Abihu's mind, and regardless of their heart attitude, their action, this action, this element of their worship, was not commanded by God. And based on the text... This seems to be the main problem with this act of worship. I want to read uh, just a paragraph from a book called Worship by Ernest Reisinger and Matthew Allen. And he says, Hence, Nadab and Abihu had created a significant change in the sacrificial rituals and had allowed something not consecrated by God to intrude upon the ceremony. By their uncommanded act, Aaron's sons committed such a sin that they were smitten by fire which came forth from Jehovah even before their entrance into the holy place and so died 
before Jehovah. As Matthew Henry warned in his commentary, for it is a dangerous thing in the service of God to decline from his own institutions. We have to do with a God who is wise to prescribe his own worship, just to require what he has prescribed, and powerful to revenge what he has not prescribed. So it seems clear that these men were guilty of what Colossians 3.23 calls will worship or self-made or imposed religion. This is devising a way of worshiping God that's not set forth by God himself, but by their own wills, which we all know have been corrupted by sin. So they had not sanctified God in their hearts, but had taken upon themselves a self-willed act of public worship. They profaned a most holy place, and when they did that, God's justice was very swift. We see in verse 2, it says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, if we compare, if we com- compare this fire back to chapter 9, verse 24, it says, And fire came out before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So this seems to be the same heavenly fire, it may, maybe even have the same source as the fire that had consumed the offering that just before had approvingly consumed this animal sacrifice. But now it had a completely different purpose. Now this fire from the Lord, the purpose was the death of these two newly appointed priests. The first fire indicated God's reception, while the second fire indicated God's rejection. Okay, The first was a blessing, and the second was a curse. So this relationship between the first fire and the second fire emphasizes the occasion for joy has now been overturned by sorrow. And the offense of these two priests is worse than other sins that are laid out in Leviticus. There's a whole list of sins that are laid out and what what the people should do about them. And their sin was worse because their life was immediately required of them. There was no sacrifice that could be made in their place. No animal could replace them. Their very life was required of them after they did this act. Verse 3 says, Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. This is a, this is a, this is a very loaded um, verse. I mean, don't you almost wish you could have been back there to hear Moses say this? In this verse, Moses explains the judgment of God to his own brother, Aaron. Aaron was his brother. And those, those two men were not only Aaron's son, but they were Moses' nephews. So can you imagine how hard that would have been for Moses to tell his brother, you know, to explain that, that this is the judgment of God, Aaron, on your sons. And he tells them that Aaron, those who approach God, must regard him as holy. God says he will be. He's not asking, he's telling. God will be regarded as holy. God is set apart as holy, and because of this, he must be treated and approached in a special way, okay? Not as we would approach anyone else in all of creation. God is not like us. God is special. He's transcendent. He is to be approached in a special way. Psalm 97.9 says, For you, Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Now, before we get... We just need to remember something now. Genesis 18.25 asserts that God, that the God of the earth 
will do right at all times. The God of the earth will do right. The Bible's assumption is that all of God's judgments are according to righteousness. His justice is never unfair. It is impossible for God to be unjust because his justice is holy. I mean, do, you, do, we, do we really think that was Nadab and Abihu's first sin they'd ever committed? Do we really think that God had not been patient and merciful with them every day of their lives? So God also must be glorified before all. This means that he is to be honored above all. So when we approach God, he must be given the place of honor, especially in our public worship. Another takeaway from this verse Uh, It's not a small takeaway, is that those who are chosen to represent God to the people, in this instance it was priests in the Old Testament, but I think this does apply in some form to pastors and elders in the New Testament, that these people will be held to a higher standard and will be more liable to receive God's discipline and punishment. So at the end of verse 3, we see that Aaron was silent at Moses' explanation. Aaron had absolutely nothing to say back to Moses. And again, we can't forget that these were Aaron's sons, and this would have been a terribly difficult thing for him to absorb and contain. If you can imagine putting yourselves in his shoes, especially since this was and this should have been a great time of rejoicing. It had just been a great time of rejoicing for him and his family, for everyone involved, for the whole nation of Israel. But it was almost instantly turned into a time of sorrow. But even throughout all this, Aaron remained silent. Have you ever thought, you think, why? You know, why didn't he say anything back to Moses? Well, I would say it was because Aaron remained silent in submission to his God because he was acknowledging what we just read, what I just told you. He's acknowledging that God was justified in executing such a terrible judgment on his two sons. Now, no doubt he was very upset at this. But he understood that his role as a high priest must come first and must continue and that it rose above the need to immediately mourn for his sons. I'm sure he did mourn at some point, but he knew his position as a high priest took precedence at that time. So lastly, Moses just gave a few final instructions that Nadab and Abihu's bodies were to be removed outside the camp and that Aaron and his surviving sons were not to grieve while still performing their jobs as priests. So in closing, I just want to apply this first and foremost as a principle about our worship, about the public worship of God. One is that when we approach God in worship, we must do only what God has commanded. This was Nadab and Abihu's primary mistake, and this is most easily committed when we do not regard God as holy. When we mistake His love and nearness, which he does love us, and he is near to us. But we cannot mistake that with familiarity. He is not like us. He is God. So the question is this. If God is holy and worthy of glory and honor, how can sinful men know what God desires as acceptable worship? How, how are we supposed to figure that out? The answer is we can't know without God telling us how we should be worshipped and glorified. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So our knowledge of God is partial and imperfect. So we need God's guidance and instruction to know how to approach Him. 
clearly we need his instructions in order to know how to worship him, even now in the New Testament church, right? Though our worship looks much different from it did than it did back then, God has not changed at all. We have to remember that. He is the same God as he was the instant Nadab and Abihu died. Fortunately, and mercifully so for us, and graciously, he has given us direction in his word on how he desires to be worshipped under the new covenant. And these ways are clearly summed up in our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession in chapter 22, paragraphs 1 and 5. And if you indulge me, I'm going to read them. Paragraph 1 says, But the only acceptable way of worshiping the true God is appointed by himself in accordance with his own will. Consequently, he may not be worshipped in ways of mere human contrivance or proceeding from Satan's suggestions. Excuse me. Visible symbols of God and all other forms of worship are not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures are expressly forbidden. And then paragraph 5 says, This tells us what our elements of worship should be. This tells us what God has prescribed to be how he is to be worshipped now. It says the reading of the Scripture, the preaching and hearing of the Word of God, the instructing and admonishing of one another by means of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with heartfelt thankfulness to the Lord, the observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are all parts of divine worship to be performed obediently, intelligently, faithfully, reverently, and with godly fear. Moreover, on special occasions, solemn humiliation, fastings, and thanksgivings ought to be observed in a holy and reverential manner. So this, you know, is our guiding principle to what and how we are to worship God. These are the examples that God has given in the New Testament based on principles from the whole Bible. And so when we are, when the elders are deciding, you know, what kind of work, what our worship is going to look like, this is where we look. We look to, first of all, the Bible to tell us what God has said or how God has said he wants to be worshipped. And fortunately for us, we have our confession that helps us to um, determine those things. I want to read, this is the last quote. It's from a Bible commentator named R.M. Edgar, and he has this to say. I'm almost done. This is the last, last quote. It is clear that God only accepts what he himself inspires. This is the lesson of this sad providence. We must bring back to God what he has given. Independent offerings are not acceptable. To come to him in a way of our own devising instead of by Jesus Christ. To come to him in a self-confident spirit instead of the humility inspired by the Holy Spirit. To come to him with proud, cold hearts instead of with warm and ardent ones is to be sent empty away. He refuses all such counterfeit offerings. He must have divine fire or none. So this is a pretty solemn section of scripture that we've heard about this morning and preached about but you know I don't want to leave leave you guys with a bad taste I want you to know I want you to be glad that God has solved this problem hasn't he solved this problem of sin the problem of us being sinners and God being holy he solved it by sending his own son to live a perfect life to live a holy life in obedience to his law and die on a cross to pay the penalty for the sins of all those who will repent of their sins and believe that the death that
that Jesus died was done for them. If you are a child of God, you're not under wrath, but under mercy. That's good news and great news, I believe. So I want to ask everyone here this morning, have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in the finished work of Christ on your behalf? If not, I ask you to do it now. If you're grieved by your sins, if you're sorrowful because of your sins, repent of them and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you've given us your word, Lord. We are not left in darkness, but we have the guiding light of your holy scriptures, Lord. We thank you, God, that you created us to worship And we have found our way here this morning to worship you, the one true living God, and your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would, none of us here would know your justice or your wrath, but we would know your mercy and your grace, that by faith we would grasp the work that Christ has done on the cross. Lord, I pray that for each one here hearing this, that we would all have faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity and this privilege to hear your word. I pray that each of us would take this to heart, God. We would take to heart that you are a holy God, Lord, and not just in our worship, but in our lives every day, that we would desire to please you with every part of our lives or with our relationships, with our families, our relationships at work with the decisions that we make, God, that everything that we do will be desired to please you because we know that's for, for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.